Well, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Revelation. And I just want to do a quick review of last week and uh, remind us, first of all and foremost, when the Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is about him. That's what we need to remember first and foremost. It's about him. It's a book that deals, like in chapter 1, kind of with identifying who Jesus was again, kind of past. And then it really jumps into the present in chapters 2 and 3 where it talks about the seven churches. And then from chapter 4 on, we're looking into the future. And the seven churches we talked about a little bit last week, just as a review who they are, if you look at the map that might come up. Did it happen? All right. We talked about these churches, and, you know, they're not the biggest and the most famous churches at the time. I mean, if we look at your New Testament Bible, you'll see there's churches like the church in Corinth, the Corinthian churches that are written books of the Bible, letters to them, the church in Galatia, the church in Coloss. There's a lot of churches, but these are the seven that he chose that God used in this letter. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Ephesus, and Laodicea. And as you read about them in the book, of chapters 2 and 3, we see a lot of significant things about who God is. We see that he knows everything, by the way. If you're trying to hide something from him, sorry, you've already been found out. And he knows it all. And he knows, and you see, he cares about his church. Some of the churches were pretty messed up. If you look at the warnings that are in there, or the rebukes that are there, some of the churches didn't even get a rebuke. We saw a couple of the churches that didn't even get a rebuke. They just got a commendation. Four of the churches got both. And that poor church in Laodicea didn't get a commendation whatsoever. As I shared last week, the good news, though, is Christ loved that church, too. And he gave them the opportunity to overcome, to repent. And that's kind of the theme through the churches. He is talking about being overcomers. And I talked last week quite a bit about one of the key things to, to understand or one of the key things that influences people's interpretation of a lot of the book of Revelation is how you identify and define who those overcomers are. And as I said last week, there's not agreement amongst all theologians when it comes to the book of Revelation. Anybody notice that? You know, we probably don't agree on some of the things in the book of the Revelation. As I said last week, uh, I probably got into the first sermon, and there's probably some of you that already disagree with me on some of the things. And that's okay. But my challenge is this. I'm not trying to convince you that my way is correct, but I want to challenge you, if you don't agree with my way, make sure you understand and know why you disagree with me. That's the important thing, that you know and are firmly established in what you believe and why you believe it from the Word of God. Um, I'm always reminded when I read all these different points of view about what the revelation means of the reality that this is really the true. There's only one, one right way, one correct way. God meant one thing. Now, some of it had application in different areas like the churches, but we don't know. We don't have full revelation as to what's going on. We talked a little bit about how God reproves those that he loves. And the answer when that happens is always repentance and receiving the forgiveness that he's already paid for at the cross. We know that God loves his church, and the Laodicea, as I mentioned, is a primary one. We talked a little bit last week about how the Christian life is a life of conflict. Um, 
Anybody and everybody that's a Christian and been one for very long, you know all your problems, all your troubles, all the tests and all the temptations don't just vanish when you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. The Bible is very clear that there is a battle going on. The word overcomer itself means one who claims the victory, one who conquers. And when you see those kinds of words, you know that there's an implication very clearly that there's a battle. And we see in a number of places in Scripture that the battle that we're fighting is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And a spiritual battle that's already been won in the life of a Christian because of Jesus Christ. The unbeliever can't win this battle. And if you and I are fighting in the flesh, we aren't going to do well. It's a spiritual battle that we're fighting. And we will continue to fight it. We talked a little bit, very briefly, about the adversaries, and I mentioned three adversaries in this battle. So each of us are facing these three different adversaries. First one was Satan himself and his demonic army that he has. We are battling against Satan. He does not want, even though we've been taken from his kingdom as believers and put into God's kingdom, he isn't going to leave you alone. He's going to continue to try to attack. He wants to destroy your your life. He wants to destroy your testimony. He wants to destroy your witness. He wants to make you as miserable as he can possibly make you because he hates God. And in his mind, all we are are things that he can use to hurt God who loves us. You know, those songs we sang about being his children. You can imagine how much it hurts us as natural parents if somebody is attacking your kids. Your children are going through trials and tests. It hurts our heart. Can you imagine the Father's heart? He loves us more than anything. And the enemy knows that and wants to destroy our witness, our life, any way he can. The second second adversary, if you would, is the the world. In the scripture, we read about the world. And what that means is a form of government that's against God. It's a spiritual government. It's a spiritual world. The issues of the world are continually against us. And that's why in the scripture we'll see phrases like overcoming the world. And when we will do that, we will see that it's God that overcame the world through Jesus Christ. We are overcomers because of God and what Jesus Christ did. And we looked at that. And the third one was the flesh. Your flesh, my flesh, sometimes does not line up with the spirit that lives within us. Anybody ever notice that? Sometimes we're like Paul. God, the things I want to do aren't the things that I do. And the things that I don't do, I really want. We just, it's our flesh. And our flesh has an insatiable appetite. We start feeding our flesh, it will not end well. We need to quickly recognize what's going on, repent, and realize that we've got to win this battle in the Holy Spirit. So that brings me kind of to where we are today, the victory that we have. Where did the victory come from? The victory comes through the person and work of Jesus. And again, what I'm laying again today is just, in my mind, foundational for helping us to understand as we work through the rest of the book of Revelation. Jesus is the victor. He is the overcomer. I mentioned last week that the primary message of Scripture is Jesus overcame. He overcame the power of sin and the power of death. The victory has already been won through Christ. In Romans 8, 37, it says, But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. Overwhelmingly 
conquers. How? Through him. Not because of anything I've done. Not because I'm so tough and strong and all that. Not because I can quote scripture. Not none of that. It's through him. We're overwhelmingly conquerors. Colossians 2.15 says, And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, when who disarmed them? When Jesus disarmed them. When he disarmed them. That's where the victory is. He disarmed rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So we need to continually remind ourselves it's because of who Jesus is and what he did. There is no overcoming if that didn't take place. But we have a second weapon, and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. In 1 John 4, verse 4, it says, You are from God, little children, and overcome them. If you read that in the context of what's being talked about in that chapter, it's called the spirit of Antichrist, the spiritual, the, the demonic forces, the darkness, all of those things of the world. It says, you have overcome them, little children, and overcome them. Why? Because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. We can't win, but greater is he, the Holy Spirit that lives in me. Jesus, when he finished his work on earth, he went to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit to live and dwell in us. Because of that, we can walk in that victory. In 1 John 5, 4, it says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. If you've not been born again by the Spirit of God, you will not overcome the world. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And really, it is the object of our faith when we look back to Jesus. He's the conqueror, the overcomer. It's never a person who overcomes, but it's being born again by the Spirit of God. It's that new birth that we have from God. That's how we overcome. In 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, and I'll look at these verses many different times in different ways, but it says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And then verse 5, And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And I just want to say now, notice this is in First John. Who wrote First John? If you say Matthew, you're wrong. John wrote it. Who wrote Revelation? John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I, I just have a... A sneaking suspicion that when John uses one word in one book and he uses the same word in another book, it probably means a very similar thing. Who does he say an overcomer is in First John? Who is it? But one that what? Believes in Jesus Christ and his work. In my mind, he gives us a definition of an overcomer, one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. The source of our victory is God. How we appropriate or take it is through faith. And the object of our faith is Jesus. And we need to always remember that. If the object of your faith is not Jesus, your faith isn't going to do you much good. We get confused sometimes. There's some theology out there that everything's about your faith and how much you believe. And if this isn't happening, you don't believe enough. And if you just believe more, this will happen. The object of our faith is everything. It's Jesus. He's the object. How do we walk it out? How do we receive this victory? How do we live this fruitful life? Well, faith. It starts there. 
1 John 5, 5 said, Who is the one who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This victory isn't a victory so much that's won. It's one that we receive except by faith. You know, normally when we think of a battle and a victory, the one who wins is the one that's the strongest or the fastest or the most persistent. And while all those things might be all right and good things, that's not how we win. It's not won that way. It's when we claim by faith. I claim it by faith in my belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The second way that we really can live out this fruitful life falls right in line with what we talked about before. It's the indwelling and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We want to live a fruitful life. We have the Holy Spirit that lives in us. It says in 1 John that we read, we have overcome the world because he is in us. He is greater than those things that are in the world. And the third way to really live a fruitful life, and there's four ways, the third way is to know the word of God. To know the word of God. By faith, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and knowing the word of God. The word of God, it's the truth that sets you free. The word of God in John seventeen seventeen says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing comes by the word of God. We need to know and learn the word of God. The Holy Spirit will use the word of God in us. So if we're going to live a fruitful life, if we're going to live a life that demonstrates Christ, we need to understand that it, first of all, is only possible because faith in Christ. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to help us, and we need to know the word of God. And then there's that fourth thing. And this is where we get involved. We have a role to play, and it's called discipline. And you may want to use a different word if you don't like that one. But discipline, that's the human responsibility in this process of living out our life. Walking in victory requires our cooperation with what God has already done. We couldn't walk in victory because there is no victory if it's not Jesus. But once we've accepted Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, the victory is ours, and now we can walk in victory. But it takes some effort. It takes some work. One of the churches, it says, return to your first love, doing the things that you did at the beginning. What did you do at the beginning? I don't know. We all probably did different things. But, man, we saw in the early church, they prayed. They studied the word. They fellowshiped with one another. They did all of these things on a regular basis. And in our culture, we find it hard to do any of those things because it takes time, it takes discipline, it takes commitment. It takes all of this effort on our part. In Romans 13, 14, notice these words. I'm going to read these scriptures and notice the words that require you and I to do something. First off, 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. We got to do something. First Timothy 4, 7, but have nothing to do with fables, worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Galatians 5.16, I say walk by the Spirit. Make a choice to walk by the Spirit. I'm going to hear, I'm going to listen, I'm going to then walk by the Spirit of God, and you will not carry out the desires of your flesh. 
Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice, and you can find many more verses. But notice in those verses that we have a role to play. If we want to live a life that's fruitful, that bears fruit, the fruit for the kingdom of God, we have a role to play. Now, if you don't have the first one, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, all the good things you do don't mean anything. They don't mean anything. But if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit lives in us, we have the Word of God, we need to discipline ourselves so we can live that fruitful life that brings glory to God. Okay, how many of you remember the two main questions from my message last week? One, who are the overcomers? And what are all these rewards about? And as I said last week, and I just want to reiterate again this morning, not everybody agrees on these definitions. I'm going to share with you the four primary views of who these overcomers are and what the promises mean, who they're for. And I'll share with you which one I believe to be true. And again, challenge you to determine which one you believe to be true. The overcomers. Who are these overcomers? We see them in every single church. Jesus is saying, to he who overcomes, thus and thus will be your reward. Who are the overcomers? First view is, it's dealing with the loss of salvation. If you don't overcome, means you lost your salvation. You lose your salvation. In this viewpoint, they're written, the promises are written to, to believers to encourage them, if you don't overcome, I'm sorry, you'll lose your salvation. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that at all. As I shared last week, I believe once you are truly saved, once you have truly accepted Jesus Christ and his work, you're saved. Not with as long as you do thus and thus and thus. Some scriptures that I use, and there are many other scriptures you could choose, but I want to lay these out just so you can see some of where I've went with my understanding of why I disagree with the loss of salvation. In John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. There's no qualifiers there. There's no qualifiers at all. They know my voice as long as they do good things. They shall not perish as long as they obey. All of the, There's no qualifiers whatsoever. And then it goes on and says, My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one, and no one. I used to at one time say, well, that includes anybody out there, but I can do it to myself. And now I believe that when he says no one, he includes me. Imagine that. No one. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life unless they don't overcome and they misbehave and don't do all the right things. There's no qualifier there. Again, 
There's no qualifier whatsoever. My salvation is dependent upon what? Him. Jesus. His work. What He has done. That's where my salvation comes from. That's it. I can't add to that. Therefore, I don't believe that all of these things that I may or may not do are going to change this because it has nothing to do with me except do I believe? And do I believe? Now, we could talk about if I believe we should really live a little different lifestyle, and I go amen to that. But I do not believe that it says you are saved, you have eternal life, you have passed from death unto life as long as fill in the blank. Romans eight thirty eight. For I am convinced, and you're probably familiar with this scripture, that neither life, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That seems kind of all-inclusive. And again, I used to say, yeah, that doesn't mean if I'm in his hand like this that I can't decide to go over here and jump off. But now I believe I'm one of those created things. No other created things. There's nothing I can do if I am truly saved. Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. We all would say amen to that. It's by grace through faith. As long as. There's no as long as, is there? We are saved by grace. It's a gift. We are saved through faith. Faith in what? Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. That's how we're saved. By grace, through faith. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. Not as a result of works. And then 1 John five thirteen. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This has been one of those scriptures that really caused me to reevaluate my position that I used to have once upon a time when I thought I could take care and lose my salvation. I kept thinking when I'd read that verse, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. To me, that is a verse that just plants security in me, a confidence in me that I am confident and secure in my identity in Christ. He says, I wrote these things so you might know, unless you screw up. No, it doesn't say that. I wrote these things that you may know. And if you want to read, read the chapters preceding that, this whole little book is all about the victory that we have in Christ. And then he says, I write these things so you may know that you have eternal life. As a matter of fact, I'm going to turn there and read a couple other verses. I'm going to start at verse 11. It says this, And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. What is life, what is eternal life dependent upon? One thing, he who has the Son of God. He who has accepted who Jesus is and what he's done. And then it goes on in verse 13 and says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything in his name, etc., etc. There are many, many other verses that I could use to help clarify my position. But I want you to know this is my position. And these are some of the verses as to why I've came to land 
there. At the same time, acknowledging full well that there are other people who look at similar scriptures and come to a different conclusion. And a lot of those scriptures aren't just in Revelation where it talks about the overcomers. There's other scriptures scattered throughout the New Testament that talk about those who overcome. And those are a lot of the scriptures that they would use to support the position that you can lose your salvation. And that's why I think it's so important we determine in our own hearts who is an overcomer. That's critical in my mind. A second view, loss of salvation view, second view is this, the perseverance of the saints. According to this view, all genuine believers, the ones that are really saved, all genuine believers persevere and overcome the world by living godly and obedient lives. The overcoming here is equivalent to obedience and faithfulness, meaning they believe, and there are some big names out there that believe this, whatever a big name is. There are some big name teachers, preachers out there who believe this perseverance of the saints thing, and really what it says is if you truly believe, you might have a little glitches along the way, but ultimately you're going to live and finish the race in a godly life. A godly, holy life. Um, Boy, I have one big problem with that. I can find nowhere in Scripture where it says that a believer is going to be faithful and godly and finish the race like that. If it were true, we wouldn't have to have all those admonitions to run the race the right way. We'd be automatically victors. But this perseverance is the fact, or the way they believe, is that saved people will live overcoming victorious lives right to the very end. They do acknowledge that believers may have setbacks. I believe that believers can have more than temporary setbacks. I believe that believers can really wrestle and not do well in the battle against the flesh. I believe that true believers that have truly accepted Christ cannot do real well in their battle against the things of the world. As a matter of fact, sadly, I think it's very possible that someone might be a true believer in a very backslidden state and die. But I believe their salvation is secure. Now, is that a goal for believers? Of course not. But I believe there are a lot of people that have made a real, sincere decision to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. But depending on what they do after that moment, are they in the Word of God? Are they being discipled? Are they feeding themselves? Are they fellowshipping with brothers and sisters in Christ? You know what? If they're not doing any of those things, you may truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but your life is not going to be walked out in victory. I personally believe that is very possible. Certainly should never be a goal of ours, but I do believe it's possible. I do not believe that there is a guarantee in the Bible that says we are going to persevere to the moment we take our last breath and be walking out a faithful, godly life. You can talk to me afterwards if you hate what I just said. And if you're not living a life that represents Christ at all, don't rejoice in that either because of what I just said. The third view 
is that all believers are overcomers. And I'm going to tell you up front, that's my view, that all believers are overcomers. According to this view, all believers become overcomers the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And a lot of the scriptures that I've already read are some of them that brought me to that conclusion. We have overcome the world how? Through Christ. We are overwhelmingly conquerors because of Christ. When we look at different scriptures, again, this 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, and I'll just read verse 5 again. And who is the one who overcomes the world but the one? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's asking it as a question. Who is the one that overcomes the world if it's not the one who's accepted Jesus? What other way is there? There is no other way. Why is this true? Because Jesus is the overcomer. He says it over and over. The main theme of the scriptures, he's the overcomer. We become overcomers through Christ who lives in me. That's how we become overcomers. In John 16, verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As a believer, I can have peace. And I am an overcomer because he overcame the world. 1 John 4, 4. read it before. You, dear children, are from God and overcome, have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I believe, I believe that being an overcomer is not based on what the believer has achieved or earned. I believe we become an overcomer because of who indwells us. When we're born again by the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit lives in us, I believe that's when we become an overcomer. Romans eight thirty-seven, again, on all these things we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. That's how we're overcomers. So personally, that's where I've landed in my own studies, that I am an overcomer because I have accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior and that there is nothing that is going to be able to pluck me out of his hand. Now, is it a good test to see if there's false professions? We see in the Word of God and we see in the churches, you know, some of them left because they weren't ever of us. That's true. There are probably, just numerically with the odds, there are people in here that have never made a personal decision to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we can live in some sort of religious lie or, or some type of works belief. And because we go to church and because we do things, we think we're saved. No, I'm sorry. Unless you've personally accepted and acknowledged who Jesus Christ is and that you and I are sinners and we needed a Savior, unless you have done that, you're not truly saved. You're not an overcomer. The fourth view of this is one that I I, I sort of like. (laughs) I sort of agree with it up to a point because I do agree that there are rewards, and that's what this view is, the rewards view. According to this view, the overcomer Passages are promises of rewards given to believers 
to encourage them to overcome as we go through all of these challenges and tests and trials throughout life. Now in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 11 through 15, it's very clear that there are rewards. Believers are going to receive rewards. What are those rewards going to be based on? Our faithfulness, our works, our obedience. Our salvation is not being judged. It's our works that are being judged. When you get down to verse 14, in this 11 through 15 of 1 Corinthians, it says, If any man's work, which he has built upon it, remains, he shall receive a reward. However, if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. You won't get any rewards, but he himself shall be saved. I believe in rewards for the believer. I believe all believers are going to be judged and stand before the throne of God, but it's our rewards that are going to be determined, not our salvation. It's a different judgment. In Revelation 3.11, it says, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one take your crown. So I do believe in this part that there's rewards, but I can't buy into this view completely because some of the promises that are being made to the overcomer, I cannot, I cannot make them fit into the rest of Scripture. Let me just give you a couple examples. In Revelations 2, verse 7, in the letter to the church at Ephesus, one of the promises to the overcomer, it says, if you're an overcomer, you will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Does that mean if I'm not an overcomer, I don't? get to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God? Or is that a promise that it seems like throughout Scripture that all believers will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God? Now, there are theologians and teachers out there that will figure out a way to say that that's just for an elite group of believers. They don't define paradise as heaven. It's just a particular spot in heaven. And I don't know what they do with the tree of life thing. So I can't buy into that one. In Revelation 2, verse 11, this is to the church in Smyrna. This one, I just can't see it in context of Scripture. It says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Does that mean only this elite group of believers are not going to be hurt by the second death? That would be disappointing if I'm a believer and I discover that the second death is going to have an impact on me. I mean, if you were in adult Bible class this morning, you know the second death is not a good thing. It's called hell. I don't believe that there's a second, first class of believers that overcome that get that, and the rest of us, horse oaks, have to be hurt by the second death. Another one that I don't reconcile to the rest of Scripture is Revelation 3.21 to the church in Laodicea. It says, To he who overcomes, I will grant them to sit down with me on my throne. Now, I am of the position that I am already seated with Christ in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. And I know it's a positional thing right now, but I believe one day we are all going to be there. Not just an elite group of believers. So when I look at the rewards view of who the overcomer is, 
while I believe there are rewards for us as believers, the works that we do that bring glory and honor to God, we are going to receive rewards. The Bible doesn't tell us what they are. Just rewards. But I don't believe they're for just an exclusive group when it comes to these specific promises in the Word of God. So of those four, they're the four primary views. How you see them will determine how you look at much of what's coming in the rest of the book of Revelation. And that's why I wanted to spend considerable time on it today and last week. Because as important thing as this, again, I just want to reiterate this, I, I know we have differing opinions, some of us, on some of these things. And as I said, that's okay. I just encourage you to know why you believe it. I hope you didn't come in here neutral and you're going to choose to believe this just because Mike said so. That would be really foolish. Don't do that. Check it out. Study for yourselves. And understand what you believe the Word says. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. But I think it's important you understand where I'm coming from as we continue back the rest of the way into the book of Revelation. Um, with that, I'm actually going to stop there. So, this is where if I was a classroom, I'd say any questions, but I know better than that. <laughs> so let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I praise you and thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit. I do thank you and praise you that the victory is ours through Jesus Christ, your Son. I thank you that he defeated sin. He defeated death. He took upon himself the wrath that we deserved. That, Father, we can live an abundant life of freedom in Jesus Christ through what he did. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in us. God, give us ears to hear your Holy Spirit that we may crucify the flesh and walk by the Spirit, not by flesh. I thank you, God, that you have given us your word your word, which is truth for all people, all times, and all places, that you are faithful to your word. And Lord, I pray that you will be the teacher by your Holy Spirit to each one of us. I pray you would draw us to your word. Father God, you would give us understanding and revelation. And Lord, I thank you and praise you that in these non-essential things, there can be varying opinions, and they do not need to break unity. So I pray, Lord, that you would guard our hearts and minds, that we'd be in unity as the body of Christ, as your children. I pray now, Lord, as we go our separate ways, you would keep us safe on these roads, watch over each one here. I pray you would give us opportunities to share the love of Jesus. And I pray you would help each one, especially those that may have really struggled with accepting the idea that they belong to you and that you're your children and you'll love them unconditionally. What a blessing. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.